0: Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for part two of a case we call Betrayal Vanished in Brooklyn. It's about an eight year old boy who vanished from a Brooklyn street on his first day walking home from school alone. This case was traumatic for everyone involved. What you're about to hear may not be for everyone. Here's what we have so far begins on a warm evening in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community of Borough Park, Brooklyn, where a frantic mom is searching for her boy who hasn't returned home from school. He's late. In short order, the local safety patrol and the local police were notified, and an all-out search has begun. Patrol units are searching, and detectives are investigating. They've located some video showing the boy, who seems to have lost his way, and he's talking to an adult male by a car. He appears unharmed, but if you've been in this business for any length of time, your gut instinct tells you, this is not a good thing. At this point, we know it's a race against time. Pat, we ended
1: the last episode figuring out that he was no longer in Brooklyn. We know this because the investigation brings us up to Spring Valley, New York. At 539 that night, we have video of him entering the suspect's vehicle at 4800 18th Avenue and he left the location. We also have him on video a little while later entering the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and that's confirmed through the perpetrator's vehicle's easy patch records. At 1908, we're brought to a Hall in Spring Valley, New York. Video inside the location shows the suspect attended a wedding with one of his family members, and that's confirmed by one of his cousins.
2: Chris, he's at that wedding with the boy in a car? Do we know if that boy is still with him when he goes to that wedding?
1: So at this point, we believe that the boy is still in the car and the
0: perpetrator attended the wedding by himself, leaving the boy locked inside the car. Yeah, we reviewed all of that video from that wedding hall and there's no sign of the kid at all. But later on, we do see the kid alive and well again. So we can safely assume he was in the car the whole time that this man was at the wedding. But he didn't stay at that wedding very long, did he? No, he only
1: stays about 45 minutes. And at 7:45, we have more video leaving the Catering all and heading back towards Brooklyn. We noticed because we found him on the Palisades Parkway at a Sunoco gas station about 8:15, and then coming back over to George Washington Bridge about 20:20 that night. We also got a plate reader of his of the suspect's vehicle
0: at that time. Yeah, but when we look at that vehicle from that gas station, we actually have the kid on video, right? Yes, the video at the gas station
1: shows the kid in the car.
0: So what a relief that must have been for those investigators at that point. Not only has he been picked up by this strange male that apparently he doesn't know, he's been transported to another location, another jurisdiction, upstate New York. While in Brooklyn, everybody is frantically searching for this kid. You might think the worst. But then we get this video from a gas station. They're on their way back towards the city and the kid's alive. There's a little ray of sunshine there, a little
2: glimmer of hope. And that's a great find because this catering hall, this wedding was probably about an hour away from Brooklyn. And then they see him coming back. The perpetrator is wearing the same clothing that he was when he picked up this boy in Brooklyn, which is very significant. We know we have the right guy, and we know we have our boy still alive.
0: Right. So he's taking the kid upstate. He's on his way back. What's going on in Brooklyn right now?
2: The Brooklyn community has a massive search going on. You have the local community, the Hasidic community, you have the local law enforcement. Then you have mobilization of politicians, community members from throughout the city. The Hasidic community is a very tight-knit community, as we've said, and they have the ability to mobilize. And did they mobilize? They mobilized hundreds of people from the civilian sector and also the law enforcement sector. There's an all-out massive search going on right now.
0: So that brings us to another point. In these major cases like this, a big part of it, especially for the, the high-ranking uh, officials, the bosses in a detective bureau is how do you manage all that community pressure, the political pressure? How do you keep the brass off the backs of the detectives? You actually have to not only coordinate it all and make sure everybody has the information they need, but you also have to act as a buffer between those detectives who are trying to solve this and the brass, the politicians, the press, the local community, because everybody wants to know everything right away. And sometimes that's just not how detective business goes. You have to hold something close to the vest. So one of the things I think uh, all three of us have learned is sometimes uh, managing up is just as important as managing the investigation.
2: The coordination here is just really important because you have to work hand in hand with that community. Everything they know, they have to share with you. And everything you know, you have to share with them without compromising the investigation. Now, again, an investigation like this, you would look at the immediate family members, you would look at friends, you would look at anyone that knew this boy to see, was there any argument that led up to this disappearance of this boy? You have to look at the family members, you have to look at friends, but you have to also share information back and forth with them.
0: The other thing is using the press in the same way that you just said, interacting with the community. You have to give the press a little something to work with because they can be very helpful in getting information out to the masses that you want. But at the same time, you don't want to screw the pooch and give them information that shouldn't be getting out either.
1: Pat, it's a fine balance. You want to make sure you're obtaining factual information. Uh, You want to make sure those facts are communicated properly to the hierarchy city executives. You got to make sure everything you say is 100% because whatever goes straight up to the, the chain gets out to the press. And gets out to the public, so it's actually a fine balance to make sure the investigation is being coordinated properly. Uh, we're trying to get as much information as quickly as we can, without getting bad information. And sometimes, you know, it's uh, it's counterproductive when you rush. You you make mistakes. So we try to slow it down. We grapple with the with the uh, the pressure from up top, doing your job properly, obtaining those facts, figuring it out properly, and then conveying
0: the message straight up the chain. All right. Enough about how the sausage is made. Let's get back to this boy. He's missing. He's in Brooklyn. What's going on? We're collecting video. I'm sure that civilian safety patrol is collecting video everywhere, acting like a force multiplier for the NYPD. What do we find out in Brooklyn?
1: Okay. So the uh, communication goes out to the community, to the press, to all uh, parts of the media that we're looking for a uh, brown Honda Accord. Ah, uh, the car that was seen in the video, believed there's a two digits on the plate, uh, partial plate, um, and that goes out to everybody. Uh, there's a search that's going on for well over uh, well over a day now. Uh, police, civilians, everybody searching for it. At this point, somebody locates the car. Uh, they call it into the precinct. The investigators take it from there. So they physically locate the car, or they locate the car on video. Well, the car is the car is located on video. Um, And that's how we get the description of the vehicle. But going one step further, uh, one of the uh, people who was tasked to search for the car finds a car that fits the
0: description with a partial plate and gives that message to the police department. Bingo. Love that moment when it happens. All right. So now we have the car. We have a plate number. There's plenty we could track. I'm sure we run the plate number and we find out who that car is registered to.
2: So what we find is the plate comes back to a male who lives in Borough Park community. He's an Orthodox Jewish uh, individual who's 36 years old. And it comes back to an address that is right in the heart of Borough Park. It's a three-story home. Wow. What do we know about this guy? Obviously, we're going to put together a really
0: good profile of this guy before we even think about talking to him. Although at the same time, we have to act quickly because there's there's a little boy here who's who's missing and the clock is ticking.
2: Right. So we know our guy uh, works at a hardware store in Brooklyn. So right away, we're dispatching detectives over to that hardware store to speak to uh, people over there. We're also uh, dispatching detectives over to the location of where this individual lives. And then now background on him, we find out, because now there's people doing computer work, we want to know before we get to him everything we can about him. So we know that he's divorced twice. At one point, he moved to uh Memphis with one of his wives that he met online. He worked also as a security guard at one point in time in his life. He was never arrested. And we find out that there was actually an aided report done on him when he was nine years old, that he had uh, had a bicycle accident that made him socially awkward. We know that he lives in the community. We know that we have his vehicle on video. This is our guy.
0: So we also have uh, from those records... Uh, a physical description of the individual, and we look back at that video where he initially meets the boy, and it's obvious that it's our guy, right? There's there's no doubt here that this is our guy. When they they ran the DMV photo,
1: there's very similar traits between his DMV uh, photo and
0: the the still image of him on, on video. All right, so now we know who our guy is. We still don't have our boy. What are we doing here? Where does this investigation take us next? The clock is ticking. Now you have uh, you have an emergency exception. There's a little boy missing.
1: Everybody's doing everything they can to locate this boy, hoping he's still alive. And the
0: detectives are thinking right now, find the
1: guy, find the kid. That's exactly what they're thinking. You're hoping they're still together. Their goal is to find a boy who's still alive. So they're rushing. They're using the law on their side. They pay the boy, They pay the suspect a visit. Uh, he lives in the third floor. Walk up. They knock on the door. They speak to the landlord. They use very sharp detective skills to get permission to enter into the house. That's when their investigation, their investigative skills, really take over. They really uh, speak to the parents uh, in a way that is unsuspecting. Uh, and they get themselves invited up to the third floor walk-up attic where they uh, they meet the uh, and confront the suspect.
0: So imagine this. You're that detective. We put all the pieces together. We know who our guy is now. All these things are happening at the same time. It's, it's not like we're doing one step after another. But now you're that detective that goes to this guy's house. You knock on the door. You get invited in. I want to find that kid. I want the guy in my presence, and I wanna look around that house. I wanna know if that kid's there. And this is an emergency. Let's look for
1: that kid. You're dealing with a violent felon at this point. You think you're dealing with uh, the worst of the worst, so you're concerned for your safety, you're concerned for your partner's safety. Uh, so everything you're doing, you're being cautious as to not do it too fast because you're, your life's in danger as well in, in a situation like this.
0: Yeah, if you assume the worst has happened, You have to assume he's a violent felon,
2: And you're hoping and praying this boy's still alive. I'm gonna do everything I can to find him alive. You're looking to go
0: up to that third floor addict, find him sitting in a living room chair, watching TV, drinking a cup of hot chocolate. That's what happens 99.9% of the time. But in some cases, that's just not to be. Which may be a reasonable
1: expectation at this point because you have him alive for a few hours. You have him leaving Brooklyn. You have him coming back to Brooklyn. You have him with another member of his community. Remember, they're a tight-knit the community. They look out for each other. So there is small percentage or small probability
0: that the boy could still be alive. Yeah, one of the things we have to remember, people are people. That community has the same good things about it and the same bad things about it that every other community has. They do have their people who are not mentally stable, same as any other community.
1: All right, so we're in the house. Now what? Uh, once they got into the house uh, and they finished speaking with the parents, Again, the parents invited him upstairs to speak to their son. Uh, They walked up the third floor attic where the suspect lived alone. It was a two-bedroom and a kitchen apartment, nothing fancy at all. They knocked on the door, and uh, the suspect opened the door. They got permission to come in, and they spoke to him very, very briefly. They could sense he was nervous. He was looking around the apartment. They didn't like what they felt. One of the investigators very sharply said, where's the boy? and the suspect turned and looked towards the kitchen. With that, the detectives walked into the kitchen, they looked at the refrigerator, and they saw blood prints
2: on the side of the refrigerator. Detectives are telling me, you got to come up here, you got to see what we have. When I walked up those steps, you're walking up those three stories, and they're decrepit steps. I mean, you could hear the creaking in that house as you're walking up each one of those steps. And I'm walking up, and I'm praying and I'm hoping we find this boy alive. And at each step you're going up, you hear that creaking and you get to the top of the steps. And I see the detective's face and I have this bad feeling. And he points to the refrigerator and he goes, Bosh, you got to look in here, I'm like look in a refrigerator. He opens up the freezer and what I see is just, it's horrible. I see child's feet. I see each foot in a Ziploc bag, separated. I couldn't believe it, there's feet in a freezer, and he individually wrapped them? I couldn't comprehend what I was seeing.
0: You have to be thinking to yourself, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Maybe maybe I need to take a closer look. This can't be what I think it is.
2: You want to take a closer look, but you also don't want to look because it's just so horrifying. And I just remember looking around. It was horrible. It was horrible. This poor boy, his feet are in this freezer. And now we know we're not going to find him alive. Unfortunately, no. And they knew right there that the boy was killed in that apartment. The next thing we're thinking is, where's the rest of his body? If his feet are in the freezer, where's his body?
0: Yeah. You you have to be thinking the worst, but still holding out a little tiny glimmer of hope that maybe the boy's still alive. Maybe he's injured. Maybe he's in that refrigerator even, but maybe he's still alive. In this case, that wasn't going to happen. Well, that's what they
1: were hoping. And when they opened up the refrigerator, they saw no food, an empty, dirty refrigerator, with a blood-soaked cutting board and three large knives on that cutting board with a lot of blood on it.
0: So Bill, those detectives and yourself, you're all standing around in this kind of a case, it's kind of the worst thing that you're going to have to deal with it. And detectives have to be able to do their job, but at the same time, they have to figure out a way to stay sane. After years and years of seeing these, these terrible crime scenes, the outright evil that one human being can do to another. Detectives have this knack for compartmentalizing these things. And, you know, you have to, like you said, you didn't want to look, but you had to look. It's your job. It's what you do. You couldn't bring justice for this family if you didn't look. But at the same time, you don't want to be seeing these, uh, you know, visions in your head every time you closed your eyes either. So you either have to learn to compartmentalize that and leave the work at work, well, you're not going to last long as a detective. You have to be able to go home and hug your own kids without constantly replaying these terrible things over and over in your head. And it's something that that most people don't appreciate about detectives. They carry around a whole library in their head of of some very horrible things. And they have to learn to deal with that in a healthy
2: way. It's very difficult because most of us have kids. So you associate what you're seeing with your own family and your own kids. But then you revert back to, this is an investigation. We have to bring justice for this little boy. We have to bring justice for the family. And in order to do that, we have to stay objective. We have to do our job. And our job is to get all the evidence. Our job is to find the person that's responsible for this and to do it all within the law. And that's what brings us back to reality. And and when you're looking at all those detectives and you're seeing the expression on their face, They're all thinking the same thing. We have to get ourselves together here. We have to do our job. And our job is to process this scene and to process this perpetrator within the law. You have to do certain things. You have to apply for a search warrant. You have to process that evidence in a manner where you're not contaminating it. You have to process that body in a way where you have to get it to the morgue. You have to respect that body. You have to respect the body parts. It's a piece of evidence. So you're looking at it as a member of the NYPD, as an investigator. It's very challenging, but it speaks to the professionalism of the New York
1: City uh, detectives. Um, You gotta remember, they work closely with the victim's families. They build relationships and rapport with the victim's families, and they want nothing but to bring closure and justice for that victim, for that family. So you put your personal feelings aside and you do what the investigation needs you to do. And you do long, hard hours and you come back the next day and you do it again. You know, personally, when this situation happened, my son was just a little younger and they had the same features, the same hair color, the same size. And looking at pictures of him, you know, I looked at it like I was looking at my own son. I brought this with me for years, for years later. If I saw his picture in the paper, if uh, I saw the suspect's picture, it never really leaves you. It never really separates from it. You just learn how to cope with it. You learn how to deal with it. Uh, we have units within the police department who comes down and speaks to the detectives and uh, talks to them and gets them through their hard times. Some peer social monitoring. The department is very good as far as taking care of their own, uh, and we get each other through it.
0: Chris, you hit the nail right on the head. They do this all with the greatest professionalism, but in this case, there was an added, you know, an added twist to it. They did it with a sensitivity. That was respectful to the traditions of this very unique community. And that's something they deserve some credit for also. Where's our perp while this is going on?
2: We have detectives with him outside for safety reasons. You don't want him inside the house. And now we're just trying to figure out where the rest of his body is. We have a perp, but we still have to find a kid. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's two days later from when the boy was taken. So the boy was taken at five on a Monday, and this is 3 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, and he's placed under arrest.
0: So this is two days later. It's three o'clock in the morning. We have our suspected perpetrator standing outside with a detective, and unfortunately, we found some part of this this little boy. Where do we go from here? Obviously, he's not free to leave. We know he's our guy at this point, we still have to find the rest of this
2: boy. Yeah. So what you would do at this point is you'd apply for a search warrant in the home. You'd want to search every crevice in that home. And you'd also, if he speaks to you, which he did in this case, he gives up uh, additional information on where this boy's body is. So what he tells us is the rest of the body is in a suitcase in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. He dropped the body off in a dumpster off of 4th Avenue on 20th Street. We send detectives over there and we verify that with video. And we see him go on video at one o'clock in the morning on that Wednesday. We see him dump a burgundy suitcase, large suitcase with an additional bag into a dumpster that was on the street in Sunset Park.
1: We actually got lucky that day because uh, the sanitation had picked up the trash in that dumpster just uh, an hour or so prior to him depositing that suitcase there. Uh, So I remember pulling up, uh, and I saw Billy at the scene uh, later on when I pulled up, and uh, the only thing in that dumpster was the
0: suitcase and the black bag, nothing else. Yeah. Sometimes luck is on your side. If that was at the end of the route, you might've been searching a dump in New Jersey for those bags and may or may
2: not have been able to recover the rest of that body. When you're processing the suitcase, you're processing it as a whole, as a body. We get crime scene there. We'll respect that suitcase with the body in it and we transport it to the morgue. And then there, a pathologist will go through the suitcase and respectfully try to piece this body back together. And to make sure that we have a whole body. Also, with the uh, medical examiner office, is a forensic anthropologist who we had come out to the scene. And what that person will do is piece together every part of the body so that we know that we have the entire body out of respect for the family.
1: Yeah, another thing Billy's uh, talking about respecting the body, respecting the, uh, uh, the religion as well. Um, in the Jewish community, members of the Jewish faith, cannot leave their blood behind uh, uh, on the street. Uh, So we had this special members of the community that will come out and actually clean the blood up and uh, bring that blood with the body to the medical examiners uh, to respect the
0: death of the body. So to bring it full circle, we now know our eight-year-old boy is no longer missing. He's been murdered. We have our perp, and he's in custody. We have two crime scenes. We've recovered what we think is the rest of the body from a dumpster on the street in Brooklyn. We've recovered some body parts from the apartment. Now we have to set this up for prosecution. But what's hanging out there, and every detective is thinking, based on what we found in that apartment, the additional evidence, is this the first time he's done this? Is this the first body dismemberment he's done? Is this the first child murder? Find out in our next episode of Betrayal, Vanished in Brooklyn. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit subscribe for free access to the most up-to-date episodes of Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.